For over 37 years, TargetLeads.com has harnessed the power of direct mail and targeted lists to help you achieve your marketing goals. Whether you are a coach, an athletic director, an administrator, or you represent a nonprofit or a for-profit entity, direct mail with highly targeted lists continue to outperform social and email campaigns. If you are looking to reach prospective students or athletes, they have the lists. If you're looking to grow your business, they will find you your next customer. While we spend so much time online, the offline physical touch and feel of mail stands out, gets noticed, and generates response. Don't sleep on the power of mail. If you are recruiting, fundraising, or growing your customer base, mail should be a part of your marketing strategy, and TargetLeads.com is there to help you achieve your goals. Visit TargetLeads.com and please let them know that Coach Climo sent you. TargetLeads.com. Mail works. Our next partner has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted a simple all-in-one solution as opposed to the ever-changing variety of supplements I have been taking for as long as I can remember. Sometimes up to three ramekins a day full of pills and powders trying to find the right formula for peak performance. Now that I've been taking Athletic Greens for a few months, I love it and I will never go back. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I take one scoop in the morning on an empty stomach and an additional one in the evening when I'm feeling run down. I've seen such a difference in my own performance that I recently ordered additional AG1 for the rest of my family to use. It costs you less than $3 a day, you're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit, and supports better sleep quality and recovery, in addition to mental clarity and alertness. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com contacts. Again, this is athleticgreens.com contacts to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Welcome to the Contacts Coaching Podcast, dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches, sharing what they have learned throughout their career. The show is designed to serve as a digital database of mentorship from a wide network of coaches whose innovative, reflective, and diverse knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. In addition to sport-specific expertise, each episode also dives into the ways in which culture, strategy, and tactics can cross from one discipline to another. I'm your host, Justin Klein. Welcome back to the Contacts Coaching Podcast. We are joined today by Tom O'Connor, retired pretty much lifetime collegiate coach and athletic director and grandfather of one of my current players. Super excited to have you on, Coach. Thank you. I appreciate being here. It's been a 
It's been an absolute pleasure being here on campus with you guys, seeing your games, both home and away, and obviously seeing our guys play, our grandsons play. So it's been good. Yes, and this is our second attempt at a in-person recording. For those of you that listened to the last one, realized that the sound wasn't always great, but this time I think we got it fixed. We're going to run with this. Forgive us if the sound isn't perfect. Coach, if you could... Take us through your background as a coach. I know I've got the uh, curriculum vitae here and your background, but if you could share with the audience, how did you get into this in the first place? What was the process like if we go way back for landing your first job? And then how did you move throughout the air quote ranks and also shifting into administration from coaching, going to what many of our colleagues would consider the dark side? <laughs> okay. I was in college at Assumption College in Worcester, Massachusetts, and I always had an inkling that I wanted to be a teacher coach. And so actually I applied for a position in April of my senior year to a small school out in Massachusetts, about 20 miles outside of Worcester, Massachusetts. And I was very fortunate to get the job and I loved it. I absolutely loved coaching. I, I love teaching and quite frankly, there are times I say I should have stayed with that because he made a big difference. i just tell you a short story about making a difference with kids. We had some success, and about 25 years later, we had a reunion of a championship team. I think I was living in Western New York at the time, and my wife and I, we traveled back to Clinton, Massachusetts, where we were, and saw the kids play, the young kids play, and afterwards we had a reunion of the championship team. And one kid back to, came up to me and he said, you changed my life. He said, if you weren't that hard on me and you didn't make this, me do the things that you said I should do, I don't know if I was going to go down the street that wasn't good. That's what it's all about. It's teaching and educating and directing young kids. And so there are times in my life I said, boy, I miss that because college administration, college of coaching is a lot different. You have opportunities to make sure that their life is good and and to make sure that after they graduate that they pursue some excellence. But in high school, it's a little bit different because you're taking their young minds and developing. Mm -hmm. So after coaching, I had some success with high school coaching. A good friend of mine was the head basketball coach at Dartmouth College. And at the ripe old age of 23, he offered me a job as the assistant coach. And I was known as the face man. <laughs> and in other words, I was on the road recruiting all the time. So I'd be gone for two, three weeks at a time. And uh, it was fun, but it got a little bit tiresome because it took me away from the day-to-day -day coaching that I was used to. In the second year, he promoted me to the associate head coach. And, and at the time, the Ivy League had freshman basketball. So I was a head freshman basketball coach and assistant varsity coach. And that was great. We had some success there. His name was George Blaney, who was from Jersey City and I'm from Union City, New Jersey. He had been a very successful athlete and basketball player at Holy Cross. And he played for the Knicks and whatnot. So we had a lot of synergy together. So one day he called me into the office and he said, I just want to let you know that I'm leaving, I'm going back to Holy Cross as the head coach. And I said, George, that's fantastic. Oh my God, I'm so happy for you. I'm going back to Worcester with you. you that's great. And he said, I'm not taking you with me. I said, George, you gotta be kidding. We just bought a new house, I have two young kids. I said, you can't do this to me. He said, I'll tell you what, in five minutes, the athletic director at Dartmouth is gonna call you into his office because he's gonna offer you the head coaching position. So I wound up being the head coach at Dartmouth at a Division I school at 25 years old. Oh, wow. 
And at the time, I think I was the youngest, second youngest head coach in the country. Bob Knight was number one, I was number two, and then through the years, I think Rick Pitino was number three. So they're both in the Hall of Fame, and I have a nice little plaque in my office. But, but I loved it. I loved it. And uh, we've, we had our ups and downs. I learned a lot there. I wasn't ready, but I had to take the job, obviously. But then another opportunity came about. And it was Loyola, Maryland, and I was offered the head coaching position at Loyola, Maryland. It was great. It was a Jesuit school, a private school. I had been to Catholic high school, Catholic college, and being in a private school was terrific. And I coached there for two years. We've had some success. And then one day the president called me in the office and he basically said, would you like to be the new athletic director? And I said, sure, that'd be great. Can I still coach? And he said, Sure, you can still coach. I said, what's the salary? He said, well, salary would be the same. I said, you mean the salary would be the same if I did two jobs or one job? He said, yep. I said, I just think I'll be the athletic director. <laughs> so with a smile on my face, I said, now, because we were moving to a different division, I said, we have to hire a new coach and we have to hire a new coach. And because we're moving to a new division, we got to give them a pretty good salary. He said, do you have someone in mind? I said, oh yeah, I do, me. He looked at me and he said, you still want to be the athletic director? Accept the athletic director's position. We still laugh about that. And I was there for 10 years as athletic director. I was sitting in my office one day and the dean of students came into my office. and We were drinking a cup of coffee and we were looking at the NCAA news. And the NCAA news at the time had all position opening around the country of different athletic directors or assistant athletic directors or whatever. And his coffee spilled right on the newspaper. And I said, look at that, Santa Clara. He said, I was just at Santa Clara, and the dean of students is a vice president, rather. The vice president is a very good friend of mine. So he said, would you be interested in that job? I said, I'm not going all the way across country to California. He said, let's call him and see what happens. So he calls him. He said, would you be interested in coming out? I said, well, sure, I'll be free trip to California. Why not? Mm -hmm. So the long of it is that uh, he offered me the job and uh, went to Santa Clara for six years and has great success there. Carol Williams was the basketball coach who's absolutely one of the most genuine people I've ever met. Phenomenal basketball coach. The assistant coach was Dick Davey and Dick is right up there in my mind that being a, not only a good basketball mind but just a, a, a great coach. We had some success there. I went to the NCAA a couple of times, NIT and whatnot. Soccer was really good. We had the number one teams in the country, both men and women, soccer. And everything was good, but we wanted to go back east, in all honesty. Things came about with different schools and uh, decided to Santa Clara. I think my next to last thing that I did there was sign Steve Nash's letter of intent. I think yeah. I still have a picture of it. Then we went to St. Bonaventure and St. Bonaventure was phenomenal place. The basketball history there was great and they were really down and myself as the athletic director they wanted to bring in a basketball person and so I accepted the job there. Love was there for two years and a friend of mine back in Virginia said I'm leaving to go to George Washington University would you be interested in coming over to George Mason as athletic director. I said, well, I feel bad about that because I've only been here for two years at St. Bonaventure. He said, you really got to think about it because it's a good place. I wound up there and spent 20 years there and had phenomenal success. Um, so I've been blessed, I really have. There's no nothing that I said, I needed to do this, I needed to do this, I wanted to do this. And so I've had a fantastic wife who understood. I've had tremendous people supporting me and so I, I said this the other day, in, in my entire college coaching and administration 
you have your down days, but I never had more than two bad days. And I know what those two bad days were, and it's because of a tragedy with one of our coaches and players. But other than that, I loved what I did. Yeah, no, as we're talking, I'm looking at the dots on the resin and remembering certain things that I had forgotten from looking at this earlier, including you left right before Steve Nash. You're at George Mason for the Final Four, and when you mentioned I, the Bobby Knight and Rick Pitino being in the Hall of Fame, it's, yeah, sure, but you coached for six years and have been an administrator for 30, <laughs> and they coached their whole career and didn't do any administration work, so it's a completely different measurable. I usually ask a question on this show about what did you need, what did you realize you need to learn stepping into your coaching job for the first time, and I'm not going to ask you about ID because you have so much experience and you've done this for so long. What I'd love to know from your end is what advice do you have for people stepping into that role for the first time, be it a head coach in any sport? One, two, three. These are the things that you need to be aware of before you do anything else or they're going to catch you by surprise and undermine what it is you're trying to do. Be yourself. Number one. Make sure that when you make decisions in the interest of the student first, make the second decision you may have to make, that it's your staff and the school, obviously. The third decision is maybe yourself, but never put yourself in head of those kids and your assistant coaches or the school. And then I always tell our coaches, whether it be when I first started out as a young head coach in high school, to having staff meetings with some really heavy-duty coaches that have gone to Final Fours or championships, I said, I'd rather you win a game doing it the right way at all times. If you are going to lose a game, do it the right way. If you lose a game and you're doing it the wrong way, I'm going to be angry. So it's really important that things such as ethics, to do it the right way is really important. Before you start doing X's and O's, you have to set down your philosophy of wanting to do it the right way. And you also have to understand that whether you're in high school or college, especially in college, because nowadays it's even more important. Let me go on a little tangent here, but academic pursuit has got to be the major issue why you're a coach and a teacher. Graduation rates are great within the NCAA and all that, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dwell on that, but whether when I was coaching or whether I was an administrator and a young athlete would come in, a prospective student athlete, I would tell their parents, sure, we have academic help, and if you get behind, we're gonna help you, but the big thing is you gotta learn, because, and what's a cliche, it's gonna be over at some time, and you're gonna, put your sneakers away or your golf shoes away or football away and you got to rely on something. And I really truly believe in it. Right now, I really feel a little bit uneasy about what's going on in college sports. Yeah. I think it's leaning more to a professionalism and away from academic pursuit of excellence and we'll see what happens in the next couple of years with all that going on. Yes. And thank you for segueing into what I wanted to talk about as well, which was how have you seen over the 30 years of doing this, the obvious shifts, right? And there's different eras, different periods, what's become prioritized, but the way in which you described it as the professionalization of amateur athletics 
And then you're talking about you got to do it the right way versus the wrong way. You got to have a moral compass. You got to do certain. And not that any of these people don't, but the landscape has changed, right? The money has changed. There are different things that are being prioritized. And how do you feel? Because we don't know, right? You're worried about where it's going. How do you think that this could potentially upend? the traditions, the culture of what college sports have always been about, and what are the things that maybe might be a positive from some of the shifts that are going on? And just like, we're sitting here on the outside now, almost in emeritus AD role, probably taking calls from some of your guys, giving advice on these things. What are the things you're worried that this is going to go? And what are the things you're like, you know what, that's not a bad idea? Um, I'm worried from early on in the grammar school level, to the highest conference in the country. And what I mean by that, it starts early. It starts early, and whether it be a helicopter parent or the, uh, the coach of an outside team other than a high school coach, I know that in some sports that the, the outside influences that young kids have because they're playing on club teams versus high school teams, that they don't get what you need every day with that high school coach. The mentoring of the high school coach, the understand that kid. They see that kid maybe twice a week and all they're concerned with is winning. And then you get the helicopter parents on that, more so at the club level than the high school, but I know it's there. And then you work your way up to the highest level of the NCAA where money. There's one conference. This I found out this yesterday, that each school got $46 million. $46 million this past year. Like TV contracts or what? It, all, all their money. Money is money. Yeah. And uh, money is sometimes the root of all evil. Not that I'm saying that conference or anything, but things have got to be in better place. The NIL right now, the transfer rules, if the NCAA doesn't get that straightened out, is going to be a whole paragon switch within amateur sports in the United States. I'm not the expert on that. That's my opinion after sitting back and looking at this. I think though that things can change. I really like what they did in hiring a new president of the NCAA. He's a former student athlete himself. He's run a big business. He has children that play sports and I have my fingers crossed that he's going to make sure that things go back to doing it the right way. But can you put the genie back in the bottle? Um, I don't know if you have to put the genie back in the bottle. You might have to have a different bottle and a different genie. <laughs> love it. Okay. We can go down that rabbit hole for hours, and we're not going to solve that right now, but I love your opinion. Because you have been in a situation that has allowed you not only to have personal success, but the schools you are reaching the pinnacle of those sports, being number one in the country in soccer at Santa Clara, going to the Final Four at George Mason. What would you say if you were sitting here with me and we had a job opening and it was like, look, man, coach, what am I looking for here? You've been around the block. You know what this generation is like with your grandchildren. You're watching them. What, what are the things that need to be front of mind when you are hiring people to work around your kids? And what are the things that are non-negotiables versus yeah, maybe this area isn't as important as this one? That people care that people care that you would visit the school, you would find out who they are, what they're all about. When kids came to campus when we were recruiting, mm -hmm. I would always tell them, make sure you go to the cafeteria, mm -hmm. make sure you walk around campus and talk to people and talk to other people than just your coach. Because 
All you're going to remember if you don't do that is the pictures in your mind when you leave campus. This campus is absolutely beautiful, but what I know about the people here in the limited time I've been here, I guess two, three times, mm -hmm. you people really care. And so if you care and you have an administration that cares and it filters down to everything, that works. I can tell you, I'm not blowing anybody's horn right now, but after we finish today, I want to find your freshman coach. And I was thinking about yesterday. Yesterday was during a game, after a game. And I just want to say thank him because his team was playing well and because he's a pretty darn good coach. He really cares about those kids. Thing. We're going home last night and we're hungry and my daughter's driving the car and we say, let's go to In-N-Out Burger and get a really burger. We go in and darn it, he's in there with the kids and they're all smiling and whatnot. And I said, darn, isn't that great? If you have a situation where you're at a school where the administration cares and care of the person and respecting everybody is there and it filters down from the administration down to a freshman basketball coach, you've got the right place. How then, in your experience, when you have to make a change, right, and you're looking at this, and I'm, as you said, it's about money at the Division One level in college, and sometimes that is the root of all evil or whatever, how it impacts decisions. But when you do have had to let people go, how have you navigated when they are doing all of those right things, but still not showing success? What is that like? Are there ways that you can still support and uplift? Like, just talk through what that's like in regards to those tough decisions that ultimately fall on you and the president of the school. That's the toughest decision you have to make because you're dealing with a person's life. That's a very tough decision. And when you're getting into college sports, it's a business decision in many cases, and it's really tough. It's the toughest thing I always had to do, release somebody from their position because people have families. In some situations, the buyout's not that bad, but I say that with tongue in cheek because I've done that twice and the buyout may have been better for the person, but, but that's tough because you're dealing with people's lives. But you have to make a decision based on, number one, mm -hmm. what's in the best interest of the student, yep. and if not being taught the right way to play the game and all the ethics involved in the game, but those um, ones are probably easy in regards to like the rationale right, for doing exactly. It. And right. then there's the one in the loss record. To be honest, it's in front of you all the time. Yeah. And when you're in college, and especially nowadays with all the outside influences, or <laughs> I guess influences, but anywhere from social media to alumni that are giving money, like, that's tough. Yeah. That's tough on people. So in, uh, you have to be a man for all seasons in many cases, and you have to make decisions that are in the best interests of the student athlete and then of the school, and you just have to move forward. But it's tough. I can tell you, this is not. One of my assistant coaches was a Jesuit priest. Okay. He was great. He, had, he was a high school coach in Philadelphia. He coached Tom Gola way, way back when. He walked in my office when I first came to Loyola, and he said, I want to be your assistant coach. I said, Father, I don't have money for the third assistant. He said, that's okay, I want to do it. I said, well, okay, you'll be my priceless assistant then. <laughs> so he was with me for a while. He was great on the bench. During timeouts, he was fantastic. So we had a change with our women's basketball program, and I made him the women's basketball coach. He wasn't very successful. He uh, baptized my two of my kids. He was the celebrant at one of our daughter's uh, marriages. Mm -hmm. And I had him call in the office one day, and I had a fire, a Jesuit priest who did all that. That was maybe one of those days that was really tough. But I had to do it because the women on that basketball team were not getting the 
experience they should be getting. That had nothing to do with dollars and cents because women's basketball was not a revenue-producing sport back then. Right. Now it may be. Right. But, so those are the tough decisions you have to make, and you just have to make them in the best interest of the kid. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. My follow-up, based on the unintentional comment about revenue, takes me to your Final Four situation where the impact of that, quote, Cinderella story what was that like during that time and what impact did it have after that time and how do how does athletic success impact the institution in regards to um, attention that it receives from the outside well it was phenomenal it was phenomenal it's we look back sometimes and say did we live in a movie it was just Phenomenal. We, we had gotten an at-large bid to the NCAA. We played our first game and beat Ohio State. Second game, we beat North Carolina. The third game, we beat Wichita State. And then in the finals of the regionals, we beat Connecticut, who was the number one team in the country at the time. All right. It was just phenomenal. We played in Washington, D.C. for that game. But as we came back through the city of Fairfax. There were people lined on the streets and whatnot. We, we had a 10,000 seat arena at George Mason. There were 9,000 people mm. in the stands, just yelling and screaming. Mm -hmm. And then it just kept getting bigger and bigger. Our point guard was in the cover of Sports Illustrated. Going to the Final Four, it just was, it was phenomenal. What we made sure that we did, we took advantage of that. And so we had a plan to not only push our basketball part, or athletic part, mm -hmm. but our academic part. Our admissions went up, and so our yield on students' application was phenomenal. Amazing was out of sight. New faculty members came. We had some really top-notch faculty members that joined our faculty at the time. So the notoriety was just at, off the charts. Mm -hmm. In a low-hanging fruit type of incident, we sold $1 million of T-shirts in one day. Wow. Um, in the marketing of it and advertising, we had a company take a look at it from New York and it was almost close to a billion dollars of free advertising we got. So obviously we became America's school for a while yep. and our admissions just was unbelievable. The amount of applications, applications we got um, and the notoriety. Uh, everybody thought we were just this small little school in Virginia and all of a sudden they realized we were the 32,000 students in Virginia that it was pretty darn nice with a nice campus yep. outside of Washington, D.C. So the yield on success was just absolutely phenomenal. And we still live it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you mentioned earlier when we were talking about having to release people and buyouts and things of that nature. How do schools, to the extent that you can share actually navigate that right where it's like all right we got coach x signed to this contract and he's got this buyout and he's not winning enough and we're going to get rid of him and it's a state institution like say ucla or whomever when as a state institution they can only pay x that's officially on the books that we all can see how does that work in the college atmosphere of here's where all this money really comes from and here's how we're able to do these things at that level, almost professionally. I think it's more than just athletics that happens, but there, there is money available when 
that happens and you take a look at it from a business standpoint, you cut your losses. I hate to put it that way, but there is money available when things come like Some schools uh, may have to go out and fundraise to do that. We did not have to do that when we made a release of one of our coaches before, as my, actually my second year at George Mason, we released somebody. But there's money available. I can't speak with the other schools, what they do, but I know what we did. We went to our board of trustees, board of visitors, actually. They were called and said this should happen, and they approved. They figure out how to make it happen. It's Again, it's in, in a way business. When we moved from the our conference, former conference to the Atlantic 10. Yes. It was a million buy a buyout, a million buy, million dollar in. Yeah. And so it was it's a business decision that you make for the goodness of the program, the area, the kids and whatnot. And there's always a yin yang on that with what's the best for the kids, what's the best for the university and uh, you have to go back and say, We're not doing this the right way. And yeah. we have to do it the right way. So you have to make sure that there's money available sometimes to make sure you do it the right way. Yeah, no, it's good information because as a lay person, you or me being, in this case, just assume that some booster's coming in, writing a check and being like, get rid of so-and-so. And it may be true, it may not. I was just curious how it actually works. It could be at some schools. I don't know. I would hate to think that there is that type of pressure from the outside. It should be an institutional decision. Yep. That's a problem that's going on right now. There's too many outside influences, which I said before, yep. anywhere from alumni to social media. It's... It's too many outside influences. Yeah, no, for sure. Okay, my other question in scouring the resume earlier is that you were the chair of the Division One Men's Basketball Committee. I would love to know how all of that actually works and gets shaken out. And when you have to pare down 364, I think it is now, down to 64, and try to honor resumes that people may or may not have issues with trying to figure that how does that work well we have a 12-man committee okay and we work all year long at it we divide up the country into into conferences we get a lot of input we do some statistical analysis and then we meet in just before the right after the, each of the tournaments and we have pretty good round-robin sessions of discussion now we have a lot of information on the numbers based on who you play where you play, how you did, your opponent's opponents. And so those the statistical analysis are really important. But I've always said that the NCAA basketball tournament is not a math quiz. It's a basketball tournament. So at some point you have to realize that the basketball part of it is the ultimate part of it, not the statistical analysis. However, you have to have a starting point and you start with the statistical analysis mm -hmm. and who you play, where you play, how you did. I'm not gonna say the first part is easy, it's not, but it's easier to get to the first part. But when you get to the bottom and you have to make a decision on who's in, who's out, and the last couple, it's excruciating. It's absolutely excruciating, but you have to make the decision based on the basketball part of it. And Hopefully that during, not hopefully, you have to have that information during the year. Now, myself trained in basketball helped, and I was very fortunate to have a committee that had some basketball people on it, former basketball coaches, and some people who just understand the game. Dan Guerrero at UCLA was on the committee. Dean Smith, Ohio State, was on the committee. Phenomenal. I can go on and on right. of all those people. So they really worked at it. Now, myself... I made sure that I saw as many college basketball games 
as I could. In the East, I could see a lot of games and a lot of, because I had the Big East, the ACC, I could go any place I wanted and because I was chair, I went all over the country. But there were some times that I just couldn't get to games. And I know I couldn't get to a couple of the West Coast games. Mm -hmm. I would call somebody like a Carol Williams or somebody who was, in fact, the one person I called was the assistant at the Clippers. I said, go see this team play and tell me about their defense intensity, their ball screens, yeah. all, give me the basketball stuff. And that was neat. You want to make sure that you, when you're making that decision, the team's coming in, that's a major decision for A, those kids. They've worked hard. The school, alumni, and you have to make the right decisions there. It's actually the best professional position I was ever in. Though. It was phenomenal. All right, let me ask this. And I, there may not even be an answer. The guy on ESPN that has this thing, bracketology, all year long, first first out, first in. How accurate is he he's, going and predicting? He's great, but I'm prejudiced because he's a good friend. Joel Lenardi's a good friend. I've known Joel Lenardi almost 30 years. He was the vice president at St. Joe's, and yep. he's good. Okay. He really works at it. Yep. He works at it every day and does, does a good analysis, but he sees games too. Yeah. And he also talks to basketball people. Yeah. And he's figured it out, too. If my job and your job every day just watching basketball and thinking basketball every day, you'd be, you'd pretty, be pretty good close. at picking it. But he's great. Okay. He's right on target. I love him as a person and as an analysis. The second question, I, because if I read this right, you had a five-year term on this committee, is obviously there's hits and misses. But in those random 15-2, those type of games, are those... In hindsight, like we missed on the seeding, or was it just it was that team's day? Like I joke about our game earlier this year, where it's like we played that team ten times, we might win three. Mm. Is that just that happened to be that day, or what? Are were there some misses? It's like yeah, we spoke that one, and that team actually just. Uh, I hope we didn't. I don't think we had any misses. I, I'm not patting myself on the back on this one, but I, I remind people of this in the NCAA. In the year that I was chair. All the number one seed made it to the final four. There you go. <laughs> and, that, and that's been the only year that's ever happened. But that's patting myself on the back. That is, but, but there you have it. But we had, like I said, we had phenomenal people, phenomenal people on that committee. And there are other committees that they take it so serious. And there aren't any really bad misses that I can remember in the five years. We get a lot of criticism on that during and after. But sometimes it's undue. And again, I'll tell you a little story that... Uh, one of the commentators on one of the sports shows said one day, take it to the bank. This was on a Friday night. Take it to the bank that X University will be in the tournament and there will be a high seed. We eliminated that team the night before. You know? <laughs> so we have all the information. They are making... They're guessing. Not only they're guessing, they have honest guess, yeah. but they have to do things to make sure that their viewers or the listeners are listening or viewing. Nice. Love it. Okay, so here's it. I want to pivot back to being an administrator and a coach. And as an athletic director, you obviously oversee the entire slate of sports programs at each of the institutions that you were at. One of the things that I ask on the show a lot is what have you learned watching other sports that are outside your primary discipline, which you have been able to take and apply to yours. And as a on the floor, on the field, on the deck coach, whole lot easier to be very specific. Hey, I watched the basketball team do this and I stole that. I'm curious from your lens, what are some of the best things that you have seen your coaches do? That's more than caring. That's actually, it might be tactical. It might be routine. It might be things that they do with the team, but that you've seen 
And when coaches come into you and they're struggling, they're like, I don't know what to do here. Like, your colleague over here who coaches the soccer team, I know you're the tennis coach, but like you probably go talk to them about what they're doing because it, it could apply. There any that you can offer to people just out there? These are some of the best things I've ever seen done in coaching teams. I think there's people that are mentors, um, question about that. Someone who's been through the experience, you always have to learn. We were, I was having a rough time at Dartmouth at 25 years old. I went to the baseball who had been there for a long time, had a lot of success, and we talked about coaching. We didn't talk about the X's and O's, we talked about discipline, we talked about all the things that means to be successful beyond the X's and O's. And so you really try to steer people in that direction. And then you knew you yourself, if you've been through the wars of coaching, you can take them aside and say, be yourself, do the things that you need to do, and make sure you take care of their basic human needs. Make sure that they're comfortable, whether it be food, shelving, clothing, and love. Make sure you do those things. And then the X's and O's, that's why you have assistant coaches to help you out in that. But if you can find somebody that could be a good mentor within your program, use them. And if you can find somebody outside, talk to them. We talked before we got on the, the podcast about uh, Gary Cunningham, who's just one of the greatest human beings that ever lived. I picked his brain one afternoon for 45 minutes, and I learned so much as an administrator. I had been an administrator for 20 years, but I learned a lot from him. So you have to go out and you have to find people and ask them, and most people will like the fact that you came, ask them their advice. So I would encourage any young coach or any coach, if they're struggling, go talk to somebody. I tell our own kids and our grandkids, you know, don't go it alone. Yeah. You have to make a decision, don't go it alone. If you have a situation, go talk to somebody else. And same with a coach. If you're having a tough time with a kid, you're having a tough time with this, go talk to somebody else. If you have a tough time with offense, go talk to somebody you know about offense. Mm -hmm. From that standpoint, from a coach. You might not be able to do the same thing with if you're a soccer, a basketball coach or a soccer coach. But I remember way back when, I went to the hockey coach at Dartmouth, and I said, tell me about when you put the ball behind the net, or the buck behind the net, and make the defense go. He told me something, how to do that. I don't know if we still won the game, but it sounded pretty good. So you just find people, and they can be mentors, and they can be teachers of yourself in the long run. All right, I'm gonna pivot again. You keep mentioning my kids and my grandkids. And so as, a career athletic administrator as someone who got their start teaching and coaching and as you've now been able to be a parent to be a grandparent to watch them go through their journey what are the things that you've learned from that experience that were you to get back in the game either as a coach or an ad that you're taking from watching that and going huh yeah that's something that 40 years ago wasn't a priority and now it is. Just watching that separate, that second set of kids go through this and then, hey, the dynamic has changed in each of these generations for whatever reason. People want to say kids aren't like they used to, whatever. It's all nonsense, but it's different. And so what are you, you're now seeing this generationally. What are some takeaways that you have that you can offer to people who are just getting into this, here's the opportunity to be the mentor, to drop the wisdom of, I'm on my third generation of watching this in my own household and here's what I can tell you. Enjoy watching your kids play. Watch enjoy, enjoy watching your grandkids play and tell them whatever coach says to do it and keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Love it. Why would you say that? Because that's their mentor. I'm their family. When I go to a game, I watch the game, enjoyment of the game and enjoyment that they're being successful. And when the things happen in a nice way, I'm with them. Things went not going that way that way I'm with them as well you had a tough game last night I grabbed Trent after the game and I just said win the next one all right and let's go have a pizza or something like mm -hmm. that I know that they'll 
they have good coaching and if they didn't have good coaching and good people around them then that would be different but so I'm very comfortable sitting in the stands and watching them play and enjoying life watching them what is an area that professionally where a failure of yours and by that I mean you've had a very successful career right each job has led to the next ladder up or opportunities there haven't been a ton of setbacks in that space but along the journey Right, I'm sure there are errors that have been made that then informed future decisions and how you operate professionally. Are there anything that still stand out as like, this was a pivotal moment for me in learning how to do this job or learning how to deal with coaches, how to deal with players, how to deal with administrators, how to deal with the NCAA, where it was just, it still hangs with you. Yeah, that, the, the moment that Coach Williams uninvited me back as a manager and I had to figure out, like, yo, I'm not working hard enough. I'm not doing what I need to do. It was a pivotal moment for me. I'm not sitting here with that if he doesn't fire me in that moment and then welcome me back to have the conversation of, yo, do you know what's going on here? And it was like, yeah, I do now. So any of those that you remember that maybe weren't that, that just moments that were like, aha, learning opportunities for you. I think there's a learning opportunity every day. Right. There's something's new every day. When you're dealing with, with 500 athletes mm-hmm. in an athletic department, there's something new every single day. We had a full staff. I had 130 full-time employees in the athletic department, and so there's something new every day. And you learn every day. Oh, yeah. So there's going to be something new, and you have to react. And there, there are good days and there are down days, but as I mentioned before, I never had more than two terrible days. Mm-hmm. So I can't think of anything right now, but it's been a learning experience all the time. After I stopped I stopped coaching and stopped in athletic administration, I went to consulting and I saw a whole new world there as well. And uh, that was different. And I was able to help some people do some things there. But again, there was feedback to me because it was something new that I was in. And even though I was giving them some advice on how to do things, in speaking with them, I learned something. So I was learning all the time, and if you don't, if you feel that you're not learning all the time, you're doing an injustice to your, yourself, and you got too much of an ego there. Yeah, so I don't think I can pinpoint anything right now, but uh, all right, let me reframe. You learn every day, of course, absolutely. Let me, let me. I'm not going to reframe. I'm going to pivot to another question I usually ask that I stole from podcasts, but I've always found it interesting, especially a growth mindset guy like yourself. You're learning every day. So what's the most recent thing you've changed your mind on? I used to be here and dug in, and now I'm over here, and here's why. In regards to your learning, and so your opinions are going to change at times. Oh, when I retired, there's no question about that. I knew when I I went into the president and said, there's nothing wrong with you, there's nothing wrong with me, but I want to go see my kids play. I want to see my grandkids play. A great-granddaughter, I don't think I'm going to see her play that much. But yeah, that was a pivotal moment that I just said to myself that I've had enough of being away because I know the coaches know it takes away time from family. Yes. And that's really tough. But I was also blessed with a terrific wife and a terrific family. She understood that what we were about, but we brought them along. When we went to Final Fours, brought them along. When we went to games, we Final Fours. And I didn't want to miss any games. So there were some times that if there was a particular team playing, and I was blessed with a big staff. So I said, you got to take that because i got to go see one of the kids play. So that was my pivotal moment when I finally said, that's it from a personal standpoint, a family standpoint, that I'm 60-some years old. I've been through this. I don't need this anymore from a standpoint of recognitions but not. 
I just want to sit in the stands and watch them play. Yep. And that's what I enjoy the most. I've enjoyed this trip playing, uh, watching these kids play. You probably have. I stay and watch the JV game. They're all going to get something to eat. I know. I don't know their names, but I know their numbers on the team. Obviously, when Tate plays on the freshman team, there's a, a different way of looking at it. But I'm there for the JV game. I said, boy, that number 11, he's not, he's not bad. That lefty kid. <laughs> yep. uh, and then the varsity game with Trent. So I sit there and enjoy it, in which you couldn't do that as much because even when I went to a kid, one of our children's games, I knew that the next day we had a game, yep. Mason. And there were times in we had Thanksgiving dinner, maybe in New Jersey with family, and I had to get in the car the next day. Yep and go. And so it let my mind be as such that family's always a number one priority, but a little bit more different that I didn't have that extra, I don't want to say baggage, that sounds bad, extra thing on my mind that I had to do. So I enjoy what I'm doing. All right, so here's my follow-up. How do you get out of your own kid's way? your own grandkids way, not you particularly, but people. For example, Trent hopping on a plane and flying six hours across the country to go to school on the other coast and how that has helped or hindered his growth. But like, how do you figure out as a parent and as a coach and as an administrator and as a teacher, as you're trying to keep the student at the center of this thing, how do you do that in a way that's authentic and generative and what's best for them might not be what you've ever even considered or thought about? Hopefully you give all of them really strong wings and let them fly. And if you give them a good background, a good upbringing, and that they've been to good schools and whatnot, and you teach them either directly or indirectly about good ethics and good family life, then you know you can be comfortable that they can be comfortable in a place. But obviously... We knew a little about Stevenson or whatnot, and they still have to make their own decisions. I, I know in case with Trent, there was a public school right there, but there was another school right in the area, which is very good and academically, that he could have gone there. There was a research about here, and we said that would be phenomenal for him. And I think it worked out better than everybody thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. obviously. Well, absolutely, and I think ultimately to your point at the very beginning of this where the shift in athletics and the outside noise and all the people that now have opinions, right? Hell, when I grew up, it was like, do as your parent tells you, do as your coach tells you. It wasn't like, let me get on the internet and see if they're right or wrong. And now all that's changed, right? So when I'm asked, like, how do we get out of the way? How do we make sure the right people are the advisors versus whatever they're reading on Twitter or TikTok these days. And you already spoke to it, right? You have good people around them. You're getting them educated right. and you're doing your research. Right. And yeah, it seems to have worked out better than you would have, we would have hoped for. Last question. And this is more of a mentorship question of institutions at some point are hierarchical. It is are. Right. There's the president of the school, there's the athletic director, there's the deans of certain things, right, all the way down to whatever each organization, be it a school, be it a corporation, like, like whatever it is. As a middle manager who ran a huge department, because ultimately we all report to somebody, um, what advice do you have for people that, let's call them direct reports, that have objections, have concerns that are raising them, 
and hurt or not, right? But I'm sure you've been around it, right? There are people that just continue to pound the drum when it's already been dealt with. And there are people that don't ever say anything. Like, what's the sweet spot of like, hey, how do you bring something to your supervisor, whatever, your, the person you report to's attention, and then know that it's been dealt with or trust that you don't need to continue to raise the objection? Like, where's the sweet spot for figuring out that whole kind of dynamic of you don't want to be a squeaky wheel, but at the same time, like you're an institutional person and you trust the administration, right? It's just this weird dynamic at times where you're trying to be receptive of the noise coming up. And at Mm -hmm. times it's just like, we've made this decision. Mm -hmm. Let it go. Everybody's safe. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you coach that? Well, I think you have to do your homework on you, what you want to propose to them. And it should be logical and it should be helpful in moving the school forward. And by moving the school forward at the same time, it's in the best interest of that athlete. If you want a new gym, we'll say, yep. it's because it's the falling apart. So you have to have that homework to give the logic and go forward. The one thing that I would say to anybody that is making a proposal and they've done their homework and there's logic involved, make sure that the logic back to you is something that you can understand as well. And don't ever make an end run. Don't yes. ever make an end run. If your immediate su- supervisor says, no, that's it. Yep. I had a coach when I was doing an interim position who everybody thought was, he was the best. He come in the office, he said, we should do this. He has homework, we should do this. And I said, I don't want to use his name. I said, coach, we can't do that. And this is the logic. He was great. He never went any place with it. And that was it. I know there are the other coaches that have tried to do the end run. And then we have a problem All right, right there. So I would say, do your homework, present it logic. Accept the logical answer and understand where you are on the pyramid of, yep. of hierarchy and then move forward with it and do your best with what you have. Yep. I also think there's an aspect of us educating them that their tunnel vision in a particular space and how sure. we educate them to the institutional need, as you said. Yeah, that's absolutely a basketball problem. Let me explain to you how all of this stuff works. Right. But you, have to, you understand this, but there's a lot of people who don't understand this, that coaches and athletic directors sometimes have tunnel vision and don't see the big hole. People have criticized me because I have said that athletic or basketball, in this case, doesn't necessarily have to be the front door of the university or the school. The library is more important when you get right down to it. And the school as itself. Is it really important to have a good athletic program at a university level? Absolutely. And a a program that is successful in a good way and sustaining. But it's not bigger than the place. So the reason why there's presidents and vice presidents is they have more of a global view of what's going on. And sometimes parents or athletic directors or coaches do not have that global view. Once you step back and say there is a global view and I can see the logic of that as the institution as a whole, then you can sit back and say, that's it. Now, if you don't have, if you don't have an administration who understands the value of athletics, then you may have to move on. And it's just more about, I think, as I have matured, for lack of a better word, got gained more experience in been able to get that perspective that you're talking about it's been a lot easier to 
understand the institutional priorities and row in alignment with them than feeling like you're fighting this uphill battle. We, athletically at this school, we have tremendous support, top down. And a lot of that has to do with being able to understand the place that it plays within the institutional program, the institutional mission and vision. I think that's your point. It's how does this align? What role do you play in this? And I've said at all times when you're hiring coaches, are they mission appropriate fits? Right? Do they have the same talk track that you do? Are they going to fit with what you do no matter how good they are? Because at the end of the day, it might not be a mission appropriate fit. And that's what's most important to your answer at the beginning. Be yourself. And if yourself isn't right for that place, it's going to work itself out. Anyway. And it's important that, like I said, you, you, you know yourself and, uh, and you know what your priorities in life are. And if your priorities fit with the priorities of an institution, then it's a nice... If it doesn't, then you have to make that decision, or the university or college has to make a decision. But when it's good, Jim Valvano said it one time really good. He said, don't mess with happy. If you're happy at some place, don't have your foot out the door looking for another place sometimes. Don't mess with happy. Love that. That's where we're going to stop. I don't think we can do much better than that mic drop. I appreciate you coming on today and taking the time on your vacation to sit with me and uh, drop some knowledge. All right. Thank you. Go Pirates. This podcast was also brought to you by teachhoops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. Teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach, and he's never turned down an Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at teachhoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious sugar-free electrolyte drink mix. As a coach, we are constantly trying to find the best products for our athletes to train and compete at their highest level. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks and has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to get you feeling and performing your best. Plus, it has zero sugar, no artificial ingredients, and is gluten-free. With eight delicious flavors, you're guaranteed to find one your taste buds will love. I know our athletes love the citrus salt. We keep a variety box in the office and our athletes stop by every day on their way to practice and games to load up. At this point, they won't even touch another electrolyte product. Without amazing products and sponsors like Element, our podcast would not be possible. Right now, when you click on our affiliate link and place your first Element order, Element will give us 100% commission. Last thing, Element might have the best return policy on the planet. If you don't love it, you'll be instantly refunded.